Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm feeling pretty sleepy and lazy this morning, and I'm actually recording this intro from my bed. Uh, It's giving Emma Chamberlain vibes, but that doesn't reflect the excitement that I have for this week's guest. In fact, if I had the energy, I would be shaking some maracas to the beat of defiant jazz. And if you don't get that reference, I need you to pause this episode right now and watch the heck out of Severance on Apple TV, because my guest this week is Aoife McArdle, a Belfast-born filmmaker who co-directed and produced that show alongside Ben Stiller. Severance depicts a world in which people can choose to surgically divide their work and personal lives so neither selves have any idea who they are outside of those realms. It stars Adam Scott, Patricia Arquette, John Turturro and Christopher Walken and it recently secured 14 Emmy Award nominations including the first outstanding drama series for Apple TV. It's truly an exceptional show, so inventive and cohesive and the storytelling is just chef's kiss. The final episode, which I won't spoil for you, um, but it's just, it's on another level. And I was so thrilled to speak to Eva on the basis of that alone, but then I discovered her extensive background in directing music videos for artists like Block Party, John Hopkins, James Vincent McMorrow, Anna Calvi, and U2. And her direction is consistently gorgeous and her eye for visuals just outstanding. In 2017, Eva also directed her first uh, feature, uh, Kissing Candice, about a 17 year old girl who desperately wants to escape her small seaside town and find solace in her imagination more recently Eva also directed a short film starring Killian Murphy called All This Unreal Time it's an immersive sort of performance piece a bit of an odyssey it's written by Max Porter a preternaturally gifted writer that explores themes of repentance masculinity and environmentalism description of any sort just won't do it justice so I urge you to click the link in the show notes and give it a watch. We talk about how Eva discovered filmmaking was a career and how she began to pave her way into it, her creative process when directing music videos, the learning curve that was her directorial debut, adapting to the environments you're shooting in and working with what's available and of course her experience on Severance, working with a very talented ensemble cast and in tandem with Ben Stiller and what she's working on now. This is episode 115 of Best Girl Grip. Where I'd like to start off, as I often do with these interviews, is just getting a sense of if like you had a moment, like an aha moment where you were like, okay, the film industry, like I want to be a filmmaker. Well, you know, was there a moment, an experience, a person that set you on that path? In terms of my interest in being a director, that came very young. I think I remember I was definitely one of those kids that while everyone else was playing outside, I was like glued to the TV. (laughs) We had a black and white TV. Yeah. So a lot of things that weren't even in black and white, I believe they were black and white. So I think that shaped a lot of my interest in lighting anyway, in contrast, because I'd seen most of these (laughs) films in black and white. But I think in terms of experiences of watching films that made me want to be a director, I remember two key ones quite young. One was Night of the Hunter, and I loved how I loved how you were kind of rooting for such a kind of dark protagonist. I found that really interesting about the film, and like I liked that it had the boldness to do that. I think and you knew he was horrible, yet he was fascinating, and you couldn't stop watching him. And then the other one was a more sort of melodramatic film, but 
I loved the imagery in it and the strength of the two female leads. And that was um, whatever happened to baby Jane. And those were both around seven years old. So it's quite oh, wow. fun to be watching those films. But mom and dad always had, you know, especially when I was younger, I mean, they had a lot of like, yeah, interest in American films on, you know, they would watch. And I, my real interest, I guess, in the cinema that I've pursued or the kind of, work I've wanted to make you know that was fostered later on what kind of took me down a rabbit hole of more independent filmmakers and foreign filmmakers so I think my overall kind of interests have been more sculpted by those later but certainly formative filmmakers were those and then in a real sense in my real life who give me you know the feeling that I could pursue that career it was you know it was not it was definitely not an easy ride it still isn't I think it's an uphill battle all the way if you're a filmmaker that sort of wants to do something particularly niche, perhaps sometimes as well. But it was a teacher I had at school, actually an English teacher who I really I thought she was really good. You know, she was very, um, she was a very sort of open-minded person. She, she encouraged me to be a writer. She said, you should be a writer from, a, you know, when I was about, I don't know, I must have been about 11 or 12. She kept telling me that I should do that. So I got a lot of support on that side of it. But of course, the idea of being a director was so alien to anyone from where I was from, you know, like never even heard of anyone becoming anything like that. Certainly not a woman. Yeah, it was the writing side, really, that sort of I came in through that angle, actually, which probably people would be surprised to hear because I've become so obsessed with the visual side but it was the writing that was my first love definitely creative writing. I'm wondering then like obviously if you don't have any like role models or people around you that know what the role of the director is how do you begin to like chart that path like how do you even know to like go to Bournemouth to do an MA in film and TV? My dad actually did come home one day when I was about 16 with a cutting from the newspaper about Lynn Ramsey and what she had done to become a filmmaker. And so that was very, you know, it was quite a lovely thing, actually. <laughs> because she had quite a similar background to me as well. And, you know, he was kind of pointing out that it was possible, you know, that she could take that route. So that was actually very, you know, supportive as well. Yeah. And, you know, and I was always taking photographs from a very young age as well. So I did, you know, just on like cheap little cameras and stuff that were around the house. But, you know, I had a portfolio of photographs from quite a young age of all kinds of like I used to spend hours in the graveyard next to our house taking photographs <laughs> but yeah I used to take all these black and white photos of the graveyard and I found them not that long ago and some of them were actually quite nice because I think that helped me to understand lighting and when the best times of day were to get photos you know and it was a very sort of instinctive process of which photos I liked best working out what time of day you know to get them and stuff so and where to point the camera in terms of the sun. And, you know, I always liked the the, the photographs that had, the, you know, the most um, high contrast shadows. So, yeah, it's a combination of things. Mm. And what was your experience like at Bournemouth? Did you kind of graduate from that degree sort of thinking, yep, yeah, okay, I'm ready to become a director? Or was it a bit more of a um, rocky path? Yeah, I mean, at first I went to Trinity College in Dublin. That was where I, I went there first to study English literature. And I only went there because I didn't have the confidence to go straight to film school and I didn't know if I could, you know, financially, if I could make that happen. And, you know, certainly I was able to get a grant to go to Trinity to do English. So 
that became possible. And there I, I did a lot of photography. I was involved in the photography society. And, and from a portfolio that I built up at Trinity, I managed to get into Bournemouth because I'd been told it was a very practical course, mm-hmm. um, which I was really interested in after being, you know, very much on a very theoretical course for four years. So yeah, Bournemouth then what I loved about it was that I got to be really hands-on with all these different disciplines on set. And that was really what I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn cinematography. I wanted to learn lighting. I wanted to learn editing and script writing. I think the course, you know, really focused most on, yeah, the physical kind of craft side of filmmaking. So that was, you know, that was great. So you had to like do cinematography for one of the other filmmakers on the course you had to do editing for someone else so you were kind of thrown in the deep end and made to learn otherwise their films would be a mess because of you (laughs) so it was good to have that pressure um but obviously because it's one year it was just you know you're you're kind of like cramming and we were all you know we all worked 24 7 on that and you loved it. it didn't feel like um work because it was so exciting to learn all these things and to finally have the chance to learn these practical sides of filmmaking but um you know one year is not enough time to learn everything you need to learn obviously so I feel like it just set me up for what I was most interested in and it set me up for finding a passion for the craft of filmmaking generally but it wasn't really until after that when I started trying to make my own work independently that I really learned if I'm honest so my belief is that maybe this is slightly controversial but I I believe you can become a filmmaker without doing that without going to any of those courses quite if you study films and you read a lot and you take your own photos and you kind of you know I think I think really you learn yourself if you want to be a filmmaker because it's the passion you have for it that makes you learn you know and going to a course isn't necessary and I wouldn't even have gone to that course if I hadn't been able to get a grant you know because I couldn't I could never have afforded that. So I think just my, I would just want to say that to people out there, you know, that it isn't necessary. You can definitely watch films yourself and study them, how they're made and read scripts. And that is going to teach you what you need to make, to become a filmmaker. I do believe that too. And and you talked about kind of starting to make your own work. Was that like your first directing gig, like something that you made or was it an external one? Like what do you consider to be like your first official credit? Um, I think it must be a manga animation video that I did for Block Party. And that was as part of a collective called Mini Vegas, which I formed with some friends on at Bournemouth. You know, I was studying, you know, the directing kind of production side of things. Two of them were studying. One was, you know, one was doing 3D animation and the other was doing 2D animation. And we partnered together at night and on weekends outside of our day jobs to try and do this collective. And, you know, we were very young. We were like all kind of 21 years old and we were all very into music. So that was a huge passion that I've had from a young age, too. I was always really into music. So through us going out to gigs and stuff in London, we all moved to London together. We were all on the dole and then we were doing runner jobs and so on or whatever we could do, as well as our own work together. And by going to Block Party's early gigs, we kind of befriended them randomly. I befriended Kelly and also their manager. And I literally kind of wore them down, I think, over time into letting us do a video for them. Um, And I'm very thankful for that, that Kelly took 
the risk, you know, and 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 Simon, the manager. But I did really work incredibly hard on the pitch too. You know, I put a really kind of intensive pitch together to prove that we could do it. You know, I spent ages writing it. It was very much sort of a hallucinogenic kind of rabbit hole kind of story to fit to fit the song, but to contrast the song and add more kind of playfulness to it. But yeah, so it was quite different than what I've ended up doing, but in some ways not because it was, it was very visually authored, I guess, and a lot of things like that about it. Yeah. Mm. And did that set you on the path to directing music videos? Like, did, did it that got nominated for a bunch of awards and stuff. It got us a bit of attention. Amazing. Then I kind of got to do more videos generally. You know, some of them were performance videos, different things. We always had, you know, we did one for John Cale too, who was, I was a big fan of. We always had like a post-production element to it. So that became our sort of unique aspect about us. We'd, we'd do live action and we'd integrate CG and 2D into it and, I think having that background early on was really it was really useful for me because you know it taught me to be quite technically proficient. We did all our own work in order to be able to survive at all. Like I would shoot the videos myself, or, um, edit them. The guys would do compositing. We'd swap roles sometimes to learn more about each other's disciplines. So it was very twenty four seven, hands on, and all about learning really you know so it was nice to work under that collective because you could feel like you could experiment and make mistakes and not get all the blame but after a while I you know we all kind of made a decision that we wanted to kind of do our own. we all had our unique interests and we kind of separated out and that's when I came back to my original love which was actually more filmmaking that was kind of a hybrid of documentary but also sort of super visual more kind of surreal interests as well and I kind of started pursuing that more through the music video stuff that I did later on my own. Yeah it sounds like you kind of through the collective maintain the mentality of film school in in that like the swapping roles and like the constantly learning because I think it can be like quite an abrupt transition like coming out of school where you're sort of like given the resources or just like given the space to play and then you're like oh now I have to make a living but I don't know it seems like you found a way around that. It was just a chance to work with your mates as well and to you know it was and it was support you know to support each other through the hard times which there are always many of <laughs> and the highs so that was the real impetus of it you know but a lot of it was if I'm honest because I was definitely you know not confident enough to go out on my own and definitely of all you know like like many filmmakers out there from a similar background or whatever would always suffer from imposter syndrome so <laughs> so having your two kind of people you could work with to give you a bit more of a safety net and I, I really I'm really thankful for that you know I, I'm still best friends with those guys and we you know we had like amazing times they were hanging out the other day it's like great to kind of mm-hmm. compare notes on what we're into and so yeah. on for sure I want to dig in a little bit more into like the music video process, particularly just because I'm such a fan of John Hopkins and you directed Open Eye Signal, which is just this stunning kind of odyssey of a video. Um, it feels really like kinetic and, and obviously you're filming skateboarders. But I'm wondering if that concept arrived to you like fully formed. And and is that the case with music videos generally where they say like, this is what we want to do? Or they're like, what are your ideas? What are your feelings? Go. I have pretty much only done jobs where it was quite an open brief that one was fully open there was no it was just the track I'd been told that John had been sent a lot of treatments and not liked any of them which was (laughs) scary (laughs) 
pressure. <laughs> and I was like, but as soon as I listened to that track, and this doesn't happen to me as often as I wish it would, it, that whole video was in my head instantly when I heard that song. I just found, I just loved the, the track so much. It just kind of spoke to me on this very kind of deep level, I guess. I just find it very um, profound and I loved how hypnotic it was and I loved how, you know, it really kind of relied on rhythm being interesting enough to hold your attention. And I just lent into those things, I guess. And what I did, which is unusual for me, because normally I write my treatments and put like a lot of visuals together. This time I made an actual video, you know, out of lots of clips that I gathered from films, just with this path and journey that was all about a kid escaping his background or his kind of whatever little trauma he has in his life at that moment and just kind of escaping in the only way he had available to him, which was skateboard. And I just wanted it to be about the celebration of the journey rather than the destination. And I think that is something that I'm very happy to get on board with, with films, you know, like I don't demand that they are, all about narrative I can get a lot out of films for other reasons because they're experiential in some way and so it just spoke to me in that way you know that it had that um it had you know it's the structure of the track itself really suited a film that was essentially quite existential and quite kind of hypnotic and yeah everything that I said before I guess so yeah it's one of those really great experiences and everything about making that video was um kind of magical if I'm honest I just really enjoyed it like I when I went out there I drove around with the producer for a week you know we had a tiny budget but I had like a really small dedicated crew and the producer and I we drove around for a week around the desert and I just took photographs of all these places and moments I wanted to be on this journey and what the arc would be in terms of like I love the idea of him traveling through um day and night and hitting those peaks of 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 magic horror and and also just really feeling like he was experiencing the California landscape for the first time and he was you know the actor stroke skateboarder I cast you know he had never really been outside of Echo Park so when he experiences snow for the first time there in the film he really is sort of experiencing it for the first time so it had this kind of beautiful authenticity to it too because of Chris and because of Chris's personality too, the, the boy, you know, he's a very sort of deep, interesting kid as well. So yeah, that brought a lot to it. And when you're ideating for kind of, yeah, images or, or this arc for a music video, are you kind of consciously trying to avoid tropes? Just because I think with music videos, you can often like get similar shots, I don't know, like swimming pools or like people kind of walking down corridors. Are you trying to avoid that or do you just, yeah, go with what your gut instinct is telling you? I've always just worked purely on instinct. I think in my video work and in my short film work, I have often put them together very quickly because that's the nature of the game generally, but also I just go with what I see as soon as I hear the track often. And I, I never rehash ideas. Uh, I wish I could. <laughs> I have to hear it fresh and then just like go with exactly what I see. And I just really embrace my instinct every time. And I don't even like, I think for long, longer form projects that I've done recently, I've started doing more visual research and going in, you know, mm-hmm. because I think it, it is good to kind of widen your, your interests and find inspiration from more places but certainly when it came to the short form work 
I always just made them all very instinctively. Yeah. You do need to have everything go in your favor for your work to turn out exactly how you had it in your mind, you know? So. Yeah, I guess you just have to get used to it. Not always like, you know, it's 50-50. Sometimes you are going to pull it off and sometimes you're going to have to mold it on the day, aren't you? Absolutely. And the more I've got older, the more I've realized no one escapes that fit. You know, every filmmaker out there that you admire, you can look through their backlog of work and you can always see where where they had huge successes and where they had failures. And I think it's really important for every young filmmaker out there to realize that so it doesn't stop you doing you know taking risks and and being fearless you know because if you don't try you're never gonna you know achieve anything I think it can be very frightening to to look at out there at the world and see certain people's work and think you know there can be a fear about putting yourself out there but I think if you remember that it's okay to fail then you can always have it make a good effort and and, and you know follow your follow your path and so on yeah well, speaking of longer form and also risk taking, I know in 2017, you um, made your feature directorial feature debut with Kissing Candace. I read you call that like this fast made experimental thing. I'd love to know kind of what you felt you were experimenting with and also how that project got off the ground, like how you made the transition into features. I think yeah, I was always interested in cinema that would challenge you or make you feel uncomfortable or challenge the conventional structures of narratives and of what the audience would be willing to participate in I suppose so I think I was I think I've always kind of been a little bit of a punk at heart in terms of how I want to go into a project I I I like to take risks and I like to yeah I like to try and be involved in work that's challenging or provocative in some way and I think I knew that the scheme, you know, had very small, limited amount of budget. And I knew that my, my approach and my vision was probably too big for that budget. Yet, I just did want to dive in and have a go, really. It was called the Cadillac scheme. You know, it was, it's amazing that to have these schemes are so important. But I think they suit smaller scale stories and visions rather than the kind of work that I'm really interested in I guess you know and you know I find that out by doing it you know and and I'm extremely proud of aspects of the film absolutely and of what was achieved you know under great limitations and I think you know I would talk about you know just to be honest I would feel that way but um at the same time I am really proud of the world that I created in it and you know that I I did try to do something that was a bit different and I'm proud of that as well I think it was good to make an Irish film that was very different from other films around at the time and I was kind of keen to do that I was keen to show a more a darker more immersive side to what it's like to be a teenage girl in Ireland and yeah I wanted to make something that was very subjective as well and I did want to make something that you were you know where you were looking through the eyes of a young girl who did suffer from depression perhaps but also had like quite a need to sort of go to the darker sides of life and wasn't had an attraction to that you know so those aspects I was you know I'm in you know I'm kind of pleased that I got to play with well hopefully you're proud of like the way it looks as well because I was particularly just struck by the use of color in that film and I'd love to talk about particularly like the, the vibrant reds and greens and just how you went about creating that kind of mood and that palette with your your DP. Yeah well I, I spent ages um, 
collecting visual references for it and storyboarding. And, you know, I had, yeah, certainly a lot of the scenes were very vividly etched in my head already, I think, when writing. Um, So it was about recreating those. And then, you know, I had Steve on board, the DP, and, you know, was going through all those visual references with him and talking. And we had done quite a few projects together in the past. So we already had like a good shorthand too, which was good. You know, a lot of it was to do with adapting to what I could find too. I always work that way. I, I, you know, write something a certain way. And then as I'm looking for like cast locations, or art direction, all those aspects, I start to kind of, you know, I I react to those as well. And I kind of build those into the script. And I try to like, work with the best things available to me always, I think it is good to, to keep to be able to stay a little fluid as a filmmaker, because I think you can find yourself boxed into a corner unless you do that. And I actually find the process of building a film so exciting anyway. And I love um, reacting to that, for instance, with the actors, you have to adapt to what suits them. And, you know, and for instance, in the casting process, I was looking for someone who was a proper tomboy and that didn't come to me. So then I had to kind of adapt to Anne and her strengths. And, you know, she was what she was interested in, you know, like you kind of, you know, you kind of do that necessarily to kind of bring authenticity, I think. Well, I did in that case. I think with the new films I've been writing, they're a lot more narrative-led and character story-led now. So it's a different approach, really, than what I took on that. And before we talk about Severance, um, I'd love to also touch upon this this really gorgeous um, short film. I guess you could call it, you did call it All of This Unreal Time, which is a collaboration between yourself, um, Max Porter, wrote it, starring Killian Murphy. And yeah, it's sort of like a confessional monologue. It feels a bit like a theatre piece, but with cinema. So how did that project come to you? Like, in, and, and, and in what form? Like, were you very much in charge of, again, building out the kind of visual world? Yeah, I mean, it came to me as a piece of text, a monologue that Max had written for Killian specifically. And it was, yeah, it was just, a, it was literally a monologue. And then I, yeah, I, I, you know, because it was so literary and poetic, I kind of, worked really hard on what world I could bring to it visually and ideas wise in terms of the story that could bring out the meaning of the words or contrast them in interesting ways, I suppose. And I was very conscious of what I could bring, what I was bringing to it being as subtle as possible too, because the words were so heightened in a sense. And I felt like I had to bring more of an ordinariness to the piece to balance how literary it was if I'm honest I wanted to make it as universal as possible and as sort of relatable to any man or woman on the street because that was my you know that that was my way into the material if I'm honest so yeah I was adding ideas like you know the hope of like a pink window or uh, the man suddenly lying down in, in, on the ground in like kind of a moment resignation or the butterfly that you thought you know that a moth that you then realized was a butterfly you know to me that was like kind of a representation of of harsh masculinity that maybe has more depth underneath. And I was trying to find ideas that were more metaphorical and simple that I could bring into the piece to accentuate the poetry, but also to kind of make sure that it didn't feel too much like it was coming from a place of privilege or elitism or only to people who would read literary material. You know, like I wanted it to be relatable to everyone, I guess. Yeah, so that was sort of what, what I tried to bring to it. 
Well, it's really striking. So I'm definitely going to like link to it in the show notes. So hopefully more people can check it out. We're obviously aware of time and we have to spend a good deal of time talking about Severance, if just because I was such a massive fan of that show and your work on it. How does a project like that come to you? You know, was that brought to you through an agent? Do you like know people working on it? Yeah. How did you get involved? It happened because um, a man called Owen Harris, who was a director, previously did some of Black Mirror. He recommended me. I had worked alongside him as a director on another television show. um, And he recommended me for the project. And then Ben called me and we spoke in depth about the, the opening pilot script that I'd read. And I came on board quite early. So I was involved early on you know I actually you know I got a producer credit on the show as a whole I was sort of contributing ideas from a very early stage I was on the project altogether for the last two years but at the stage I came on yeah nothing had been built yet or or you know nothing had been shot we actually shot at the same time Ben and I simultaneously so so yeah I didn't have anything to go on in terms of I was kind of we were working in tandem and building the world together really which I think is what appeals to me about the project. I don't think I could, given my background and what I'm interested in, I don't think I could come upon, come along on a project as a sort of director for hire, if I'm honest, because I don't enjoy working that way. I, I, I'm so excited by the authorship of the world and the kind of building of a world that I love to be involved in that. And I think mm-hmm. I think that plays to my strengths. In or because when you enjoy something, it generally tends to be a strength, you know. So yeah, I got to be involved in all of that and help with that, and you know, I got to bring a lot of my influences into it. And, and we were sharing, you know, all of vid- visual references together, and you know, we had them all up all over the offices. And yeah, I really enjoyed all that side of it. Well, yeah, that was going to be my next question because obviously, with a TV directing gig, because I know you worked on 2020's Brave New World as well, where I think you directed, I want to say, two episodes. Yeah. That one I did come in later on, yeah. Yeah, because I'm thinking like what are like some of the considerations that you weigh up with a gig like that? Because obviously, you know, it's great for profile. It's probably a nice paycheck as well. But then, yeah, you're considering whether it will take you away from your own writing work and, and other projects that you're kind of developing for yourself. So it, uh, with Severance, it sounds like a bit of a no-brainer because you had that like creative input. But I'm wondering with kind of TV, especially now that, you know, cinema and TV are sort of melding together, there's less distinction. Like, are you really having to think hard about whether that's the right move for your filmmaking career as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I, think I have these films in development that I want to really focus on. I think it's sometimes tricky if you're like a writer director who loves directing (laughs) that you can miss being on set quite a deal I do and so I I find that entices me back in if some if I read a script that really speaks to me which is rare enough I mean certainly with the pilot of severance that Dan had written I was instantly in love with it and I could see it very clearly and I thought this is great and that's, you know, a rare enough experience in this business, you know, to find something that speaks directly to your interests and preoccupations is hard. But when it comes to the directing overall, I think, you know, why I take on projects, I think it's got to feel like something that's going to be really enjoyable for you. Um, I am most interested in writing directing as a rule. I think I took Brave New World on if I'm really honest, purely because another project that I was lead directing fell through and at the last minute that came in. And I was always, 
you know, I've been hugely influenced by dystopian literature throughout my life. You know, I'm a huge J.G. Ballard fan, huge um, George Orwell fan. It was more just like I wanted to see what directing big television was like. And, you know, I got to have a lot of visual input in my episode. You know, my episodes, I enjoyed authoring them visually, absolutely, which I was given a lot of freedom on. I am most interested in in these days in storytelling and narrative and exploring that and learning more about that, I suppose. So, yeah, that's why TV has been interesting because I do think it's become a world, especially um, some of these shows that, you know, that have come out recently in America and so on. You know, you can really sort of you you can almost be more experimental in television in some ways because you can viewers will commit more to a television show and to going down a rabbit hole and to more experimentation I think in that format probably because they're not paying to go to see the cinema and you know it's not as and also because you're in the comfort of your living room and all these other things seem to be adding to that but you know my my true love will always be film and cinema you know and I but I was very interested in the way that some television could be bold and um, could broach really interesting subjects that, that mean something to me. I mean, I what I loved about Severance that we did have this anti-capitalist stance that I really liked. And, you know, ultimately about, you know, a kind of underdog story that anyone who's worked in a dead-end job could also relate to, you know, and also, of course, had this great mysterious rabbit hole world you know and that really speaks to me it's just occurred to me like what a smart idea that is for severance like in that there's all these kind of um levels of the office that you don't know that they exist so they've really created like a concept where you can just kind of keep creating kind of new pockets or doors to go through for like yeah i mean i know just the fact that it was really exciting to help build that idea of it being a labyrinthine world you know and that you never know what's around the next corner. You never have a sense of what the geography of the building is. And just like the characters are essentially confused and lost in their own lives too, there's a lovely parallel there on many levels, you know. And what was it like working with that cast? That must have been kind of one of the biggest ensembles that I guess you'd work with and also just like the the high profileness of the actors. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge, hugely exciting aspect of it. When I first came on board, I think the only character that had been cast so far was Adam Scott or it could have been Adam Scott and Patricia but yeah you know then obviously you know as we were underway Ben said to me oh I think you know we've got John Turturro and that was like amazing you know I went to the script reading of him did for the first script readings and saw him doing his thing and it was incredible and then John suggested his friend Chris for the role of Bert, you know, their friends in real life. And he thought he could do a brilliant job with that. So that was extremely exciting, of course, especially because, you know, a lot of their relationship unfolded in my episodes. So I really got to work on those sequences and um, I, I got to have a lot of fun with that and, you know, and, and try to make them as moving as possible. And, you know, it was something that I was excited about was showing, you know, an older male gay relationship, you know, in a very romantic and timeless, subtle way. So it was nice to have the opportunity to do that. 
Well, I'd love to talk about that a bit more because um, one of the one of my favourite scenes in the entire series was the plant scene in Hide and Seek, which is your, your the final kind of episode that you directed in your block. I think it's episode seven overall. And yeah, Bert and Irving, who are um, Chris Walken and, and John Turturro's characters, are sort of admitting their feelings for one another in this just in I guess a plant emporium you could call it. But yeah, very beautiful. How did that idea kind of um, come to you? And can you talk to me about filming it? What that was like? Yeah, I, I mean, I got a lot of time to prep on severance due to like COVID delays and the rest of it we all did. So yeah, I just spent a long time thinking about it. And then, you know, I had ideas of how this plant room would be. And I love the idea that it would almost be like, in some ways, their version, like romantic version of Platoon on the way. And I mean, the, that tracking shot through the plants was sort of inspired by Platoon hilariously, like the romantic version. And I loved that, you know, this could be an oasis and the humour of that too, that you could almost create this sort of romantic jungle out of a leftover plant room. So yeah, I just kind of went, I got excited by all of that and started think, seeing that and thinking that, the, you know, I've always been really excited by nature generally. And I loved the idea of creating some nature in this artificial world that's, but of course, ultimately still quite artificial and the humor of that. But, but really, yeah, just that I really wanted that kind of slow, intense build between them the tension really wanted to lean into that and just in the composition you know I was looking at lots of imagery from paintings and so yeah just kind of quite instinctive again really I mean like most of the time it is um, but then finding references and stuff to share in order to make it happen and, and their relationship of course was kind of what ignited it the fact that they had this closeness in real life I think you know really brought so much emotional intensity to it that you can't fake so yeah there's there was a sort of natural kind of electricity between them that we lent into and it was their friendship but we lent into it in a romantic sense and and, you know I wanted to have that very very slow camera move in order to really feel that tension between them and And just thinking about your role as a director kind of more broadly what does like a happy or collaborative set look feel and I guess sound like given your kind of interest in kind of music and sound design you know like what does that conjure up for you when you're trying to create a a good working environment I love everyone to be extremely hard work working and passionate about what they're doing but uh, you know I I really believe in listening to people and you know, like I said, working really hard, but being totally respectful of any of everyone. I like it when everyone has a voice and can contribute to the creative atmosphere. I really like to not give any room to bullies whatsoever and make sure that that's not tolerated on set. I think sometimes there can be that and it's very important to not allow that to happen. So I think, you know, when you're building your crew, you have to just be really careful about, you know, having crew a crew that really chime together and get on really well and personalities getting on is so important you know it's as important as everything else I think for me it's specifically important because I do like to come to it with an awful lot of research and an awful lot of ideas and then I really want to work with people that are excited and supportive of that but also I want to listen to their ideas and be collaborative and not be um not not ever dismiss any you know for me I think the best kind of filmmaking comes from you know, embracing the best ideas to be had. And that's what I think the best filmmakers do. They just 
they listen to everyone and they they give credit where credit's due you know and I think that creates a healthy environment yeah and you referenced I think actually it was before we started recording but you said you're kind of going back into the writing process for yourself now so can you talk a little bit about maybe what you're working on or what your writing process is you know like at what stage at it you are like do you sit with ideas for a long time before coming down to the page I think nowadays I do. I think, you know, obviously my first film, as I said, it was kind of quite fast made and inspired by the Irish Film Board sort of reaching out to me as well through a producer. It was a learning curve for me because on my shorts, I'd always done them very much instinctively and never had to deal with any notes, really. And then I think on the long form, I was very conscious of not being, uh, not having done a long film before. And I regret, and it's completely only with me, but I think you have to be strong enough to stand by your instincts as well. And I think this time around, I would be a lot more able to do that, you know, and especially having had the experience on Severance as well, you know, seeing ideas that you really believe in being embraced by the audience is a great feeling as well. I think they, that just gives you a lot more confidence then to stand by your instincts more on a long form and so on. What's really important is, I think, to listen to the notes that repeat. I feel like when you're in the writing process, you should always just really listen to the notes that several people may say to you that have, you know, and then you, and usually they'll chime with your instinct too, I think, you know, deep down. Um, everyone needs someone else to look at their work. It's really hard as a writer director to get perspective when you're right in it. So you do need to have notes from people, but you just have to be confident enough to, you know, really take on board the ones that chime with you. So on my new work, I think, yeah, as I said, a lot longer to develop it, which is important. I feel like I've been developing about five different films for a really long time. I kind of used all of lockdown, you know, the any of the moments I had outside of Severance before I was out there on the ground, I was using to write, you know. So I have been like working for a long time on several different ideas, developing things. And I'm hoping that I can... Once I get the next film off the ground, I can try to be more prolific. I would really love that. I mean, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. I think what I loved about Severance too, and what I really liked about Ben's approach was it was like he was he wanted to make, we were making it more like a feature film, really. We were making it with the ethos and with the ambition and the scale of a feature, like a really long feature. <laughs> Probably because we hadn't done much TV, either of us, or really understood what that world was about. But I think that kind of gives you you know, giving, being able to bring that scale and scope and, and, and really have characters that are so well developed, you know, is, you know, those are good things to bring back to film as well, I think. Yeah. I suppose particularly because TV is so often about like the showrunner or like the writer creator, it's not often that you do have something that feels especially authored by a director. So again, for like both you and Ben to sort of have shared in that entire journey and that entire vision, like does create this real kind of visual coherence across the series. Yeah, I think just being on board early because then, you know, you can make sure that you were, like you say, making sure that it was very authored and it didn't feel disparate at any point, you know, that everything felt very aligned. You know, that was very important. And I think I think that's what excites me generally about all drama is the ability to have, to be able to author it in some way. So, yeah, I don't think a lot of television series necessarily embrace that approach. And I find, you know, I'm being offered a lot of things and that's wonderful but yeah they might not be those kind of projects so they're not might not be the right fit for me and I think yeah but I'm always excited about any project that'll give me that opportunity. 
I've learned so many things through the through the years of working, you know, that I hopefully bring to all the new work. Is there one that sticks out? That's one of my final questions. Like what's the biggest learning curve? So is there something that you're particularly considering or taking forward at the moment as you're developing one of these projects? You're like, okay, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I think I'm in a place now where I'm sort of more focusing on the things that I am proud of that, you know, I'm trying to get into that mindset. And I think there's been, you know, a couple of the sequences that I did on Severance that I'm really pleased with the way they turned out. You know, one of them would be the plant room scene that we spoke about. I'm really pleased with that. I'm also really pleased with the suicide handling with Hallie in, uh, not to give spoilers, but just, you know, being able to handle that in a sensitive way and also trying to handle it in a way that had layers and chimed with the authenticity of people who are in that mindset. So I I was pleased to be able to bring that emotional depth into episode four in terms of her story. And I'm also really pleased with the whole grief tree scene of of Adam's, you know, the, um, yeah. So there's certain scenes where you get to make them how you've seen them in your mind. And when they work out, it's a good feeling. So I guess these days I'm trying to focus on the things that like I'm really proud of that worked out well. And then finally, what is a film from a woman director that you just love unreservedly or, or think about or return to often? It's funny, like I don't I don't really return to a lot of films. I tend to watch absolutely loads of films and just sort of instinctively absorb whatever I absorb. But a film that I probably was most impressed with in the last while would have been Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Schiema. I think she's such an interesting filmmaker and I love that she, you know, I love how how moving and poetic that film and how austere it is in ways, but also then extremely immersive and with a great, you know, great skill and the intensity between the two female leads is beautiful. So yeah, I loved that film in a lot of ways. I've always really enjoyed Deborah Granick's work as well. I think she's a wonderful filmmaker. Aoife, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and get an insight into your career and your inspirations. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Really lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. I'm on Instagram at Best Girl Grip for pod-related news. If you want to listen to more episodes like this, I recommend digging out my interviews with filmmakers Prano Bailey Bond, Georgia Oakley, Ruth Greenberg, Sophie Lippman, and fellow Northern Irish director Kathy Brady. In the meantime, have a great week, and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Best Girl Grip.